morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It's printed on page 6 of your bulletin if you want to read along. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, we're continuing in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, and we're right in the middle here of what's often called the Sermon on the Mount. You may or may not be familiar with it, but all of us, even if you are familiar with it, need the help of God to really take in this text. So let's stop and pray together. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would give us help in this time. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for ways that you use it to tell us things that we wouldn't naturally tell ourselves. We acknowledge right now your authority. You are God. We are not. This is your word, not ours. And so we submit ourselves to it, to you. We pray that you would dwell in our midst. We pray that we would really sense you present here in the hearing of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I came across a recent survey on American attitudes towards the Bible. It was conducted uh, not too long ago by the Barna Group and the American Bible Society, and it provides some interesting data. And so, for example, uh, we know, again, that the Bible continues to be America's undisputed best-selling book. That continues to be the case. It, it, it's not hard to find a Bible in America, this survey tells us. Nearly 9 in 10 people have at least one Bible in their home in this country. That's a lot. And there was an average of 4.7 Bibles reported per household. Uh, we have no shortage of Bibles in this country. Uh, more than a quarter of all adults report reading the Bible every day or several times a week, and a quarter report never reading it. 79% view the Bible as sacred literature, although, interestingly, that number drops down to 64% among those aged 18 to 29, so-called millennials. The number of those who are skeptical or agnostic towards the Bible nearly doubled from 10% to 19% in just three years. In fact, that number feels low to me, 
but that's where it rates now, 19%. These are people who believe that the Bible is, quote, just another book of teachings written by men that contains stories and advice, and that might reflect the views of some of you. 91% agree that the Bible encourages forgiveness. The number of those who say the Bible discourages slavery, 60%. 50% of all adults believe the Bible has too little influence in society, but only 30% of those aged 18 to 29, again, believe the same. Lots of other stats that I could go down and explain to you, and I wonder, what if you took this survey, how would you have responded in regards to your attitude towards the Bible? Uh, we would, of course, expect there to be a wide range of responses in this room. It's the kind of community we long to be. We call it a spiritually diverse community. But have you ever thought about this? What if Jesus took the survey? Uh, what would he have said? Have you ever wondered what Jesus's attitude towards the Bible was. Today's passage offers us a few clues. Jesus is giving what's often called the Sermon on the Mount, and his teaching here is about his view of the Bible, and it can be summarized in two parts. He tells us, first, that it's an inerasable Bible, and secondly, he tells us about an impossible righteousness in regards to the Bible. He tells us about an inerasable Bible. Secondly, he tells us about an impossible righteousness. Let's take a look at this passage. An inerasable Bible. I don't know if you remember, for me, it was a big turning point in my childhood when finally some great genius out there somewhere invented and began to sell the erasable pen. It was an amazing invention, almost changed my life. It blew my mind. I'm almost not exaggerating here. Erasable pen. I mean, those two concepts don't go together, like Super Bowl champion and Redskins, right? They, they don't go together. Erasers were for pencils, Pens were synonymous with permanence. And yet here we have something bringing these two things together. Jesus begins this passage telling his listeners that you're acting as if the Bible was written with an erasable pen. Follow his logic a little bit with me here in this paragraph. In verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Well, you might say, what's the law and the prophets? Well, in Jesus' day, in the ancient Jewish world, law referred to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And when grouped together with the writings of the prophets in Israel, the phrase, the law or the prophets, was another way of referring to the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, which was simply put, the Bible of Jesus' day. Jesus is referring to the Bible. Why would someone then think that Jesus might abolish the Old Testament? Abolish the Bible, bring an end to it. Now remember, keep in mind, whether or not you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, 
Jesus has announced in his ministry what he's called the good news of the kingdom. We said that would be like someone today saying a new administration is coming and is now here and I am its king or president as the case may be. He's speaking spiritually, not politically, of course, but Jesus is speaking about nothing short of a revolution. Everything you ever believed about how you are blessed by God and how blessing is given by God is completely upside down, Jesus tells us. Who's blessed? It's not the strong, but the weak. It's not the proud, but the humble, the lowly. It's not the dry-eyed, it's those who weep over their sin. It's not the ruthless, it's rather those who are merciful because they themselves have experienced the mercy of God. You see, and someone might have heard Jesus' teaching, and they might have concluded, well, that just sounds so radical, so, so new, so revolutionary, that surely it has nothing to do with what the Bible seems to have said thus far, surely the old, old scriptures have no authority, no relevance compared to this new teaching of Jesus's. Surely Jesus came to abolish the law and the prophets, you see. And Jesus says very clear, no, I do not abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to erase parts of the Bible. Jesus then explains why this is so. He gives two reasons why it's not correct to think he strips the Old Testament, the Bible, of its authority and its relevance. The first reason, he says, is that God's word endures forever. I don't know if you caught that. Jesus points to the permanence and the authority of Scripture in verse 18. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. Why? For or because, verse 18, truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. And when Jesus says here, not the smallest letter, he's, he's referring to the Hebrew letter yod which almost looks like a comma. That's how small it is. And when Jesus says, not the least stroke of the pen, scholars believe that he's referring to a little hook at the end of brush strokes in ancient Hebrew script. Jesus is pointing to the littlest of details in Hebrew writing to say, not even those things can ever be erased from my written scriptures, from the authority of my word. Scripture itself is as enduring as the universe itself until heaven and earth pass away, he says. God's word is as enduring as human history. The Bible is inerasable, Jesus says. And therefore, scripture endures. The second reason Jesus gives for why it's not right to think that he's stripping away Old Testament authority and relevance, is that he says he, in fact, came to fulfill 
the Old Testament. As he says in the second half of verse 17, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is something Jesus said later on in his ministry in Luke 24. In fact, after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus. We're told that he's walking with two disciples and he gives them this incredible, never-to-be-repeated-again Bible study. Where we're told, beginning with Moses and all the prophets throughout the Hebrew scriptures, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, he was showing them how it was all actually about him. Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, and Hosea, all the way through to Malachi. All about him. The New Testament writers later on reflect on this idea. They say the same thing in Hebrews 10. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. That the Old Testament presents Jesus, but in shadowy form, which we don't fully get and see and receive until he arrives on the stage of Scripture. And the same thing in Colossians 2.17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In other words, what does it mean that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament? What it means is... Several things. First of all, that Jesus filled the role of the long-awaited Messiah. That every prediction and promise about God's salvation throughout the Old Testament is answered in the person of Jesus. But secondly, it also means that Jesus revealed the meaning of all the Old Testament rituals and ceremonies. So, for example, all those commands about the sacrifices of animals being offered up to God, we now understand that those were just pictures to help us to understand Jesus, who is and was the sacrificial lamb, taking the punishment for sin of you and me upon himself on the cross. Or even the laws of cleanliness that you find all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes they're confusing. What are these doing here? The food that they eat or the rituals that they need to go through. The things that you can't touch. The things that you can't do. Well, now we understand that those were always object lessons pointing forward to Jesus. The one who would fully wash us spiritually clean by his blood. In a way that was only being offered visibly and physically in symbolical form through all the different cleansing rites and rituals. That Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament also means that Jesus embodied the moral requirements of the Old Testament. He obeys all the commands perfectly, we're told. And in fact, at the end, he pays the penalty for all who break these commands. He lived a perfect life of righteousness. He fulfilled everything that the law demanded. Jesus fulfills the scriptures in the way that he actually finally and perfectly reveals the God of the Old Testament in himself. 
A lot of people feel like, gosh, the God of the Old Testament seems so different from the God of the Old New Testament. The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us here, that he is the perfect picture, in fact, of who God is. There's no division, no difference if you look closely, if you understand his answer key, that he's come to fulfill it. The whole Bible finds its greater meaning, its true meaning, in the light of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it reconfigures and transforms how we understand it, but by no means does it ever abolish or erase any part of the Bible as long as we understand that Jesus came to fulfill all things in the word of God. Let me pause for a second here and raise a couple of questions as we wrestle with what all of this might mean in our lives, in our attitudes towards the Bible. Number one, Jesus had an extremely high view of the Bible. You heard it. An extremely high view that it has authority, that there's not one part of it that can be removed or abolished or erased. Not even a stroke of the pen or a little dot or a little curly cue on the letter. Jesus had a high view of scripture. Do you? Do you? Maybe you say, well, I don't even think I believe the Bible, whatever that even means. Let me try this on for you. If you have any regard for Jesus, will you for a moment try on his view of the Bible? Because he's saying some strong things about the nature of Scripture, isn't he? Either he's lying about its nature or he himself is duped, which either would make him a terrible teacher or a terrible man But one way or another, we need to reconcile what he says about the Bible with how we feel about the Bible and how we feel about him. Have you considered it? Jesus had a very high view of the Bible. If you're a follower of Jesus today, how have you been relating to Scripture? Secondly, Jesus tells us that he is the central message of the Bible. He is the answer key to all questions and mysteries throughout the Old Testament. He's at the center of it all, which means you and I are not. So often we get used to reading the Bible as if it's a story all about me. And of course the Bible has immense implications for our lives. The way that God relates to humanity, the way that God reaches out in his grace to save humanity. The way that God gives us a definition of what it means to be humanity. He gives us a story of the world that I believe is the best story, the most satisfying story, the truest story of all accounts of reality that are out there. But who is at the center of it all? It makes a massive difference in the way that you walk through life. Is God at the center of your reality or are you? Jesus invites us to actually get out of ourselves and to get into him at the center of all scriptures. Thirdly, Jesus is central to the message of the Bible, which means he's the key to understanding the entire Bible. And I just want to very practically invite you to consider 
that as you read through the Bible, and even as you begin to read through the Old Testament, maybe that's an intimidating part of the Bible, and that part, in fact, is the majority of it, so a lot of it's intimidating to you maybe. But would it help for you to read and to study the whole of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, understanding that every line and every paragraph and every story and every command and every symbol and every event in some way, shape, or form is integrally related to the person and the work of Jesus. It just might be the clue to unlock everything for you. Whether if you are doing a Bible study personally or if you're with a neighborhood group or in a huddle with friends and you are opening up different parts of the Old Testament, you must, we must always remember to ask the question, how does this passage relate to Jesus? Lots of other questions you can ask, but you must always get to that one because Jesus says it unlocks the deepest and truest and most satisfying parts of the meaning of those passages. We need to learn to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And I would love to give you two resources for this, ways that you can grow in understanding how to spot him throughout the Old Testament in some way, shape, or form. Number one, the first resource I want to suggest to you, which I do often to people when they ask me, how do I learn how to read the Old Testament with a, in a Jesus-centered way, is actually a kid's book. It's a children's book, so if you're an adult and you can kind of get over the ego part of it all, it actually is one of the best ways to learn, and it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, where it takes all these sometimes familiar to some of us Bible stories, and it shows how every single one of them arc and point towards the person of Jesus, whether if it's the story of Adam and Eve, or if it's the story of Noah, or the story of Moses, or the story of David and Goliath, or the story of Naaman, or the story of Esther, or the story of David in the lion's den, uh, Daniel in the lion's den, or the story of whatever you might find in the Old Testament, how it all relates to him. The subtitle, the slogan for the book is, Every Page Whispers His Name, and that's the slogan, not just for that storybook, it's the slogan for the whole Old Testament. A second resource, if you want something slightly more technical, is a book by Nancy Guthrie. It's called Discovering Jesus in the Old Testament, and it just gives short one-page devotionals, just simple explanations of different parts throughout the Old Testament, showing a little bit how Jesus is connected to each of those stories. It's actually written as a one-year devotional, so that might be a great way for you to read the Bible, to ponder your own life in light of it, and to grow in your understanding of the Old Testament. Jesus points us to an unerasable Bible, one that he does not abolish, but in fact one that he fulfills. But secondly, he also points us to an impossible righteousness. An impossible righteousness. If the scriptures are fulfilled in Jesus, he also tells us then we need to follow it. If it really is the enduring word of God, then we are accountable to it. In verse 19, he says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices or does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus is calling not us not just to a certain attitude towards the Bible where we have a high regard for Scripture, but he's actually calling us to follow it, to obey what we find in Scripture, to conform our lives around it, to let it shape us rather than us shape how we read it. Jesus says it's, it's all of Scripture, even the, the least of these commands that we are accountable for obeying. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's worth considering all the different ways in which we best try to avoid the practice of God's word. Ways in which we just try to weasel our way out of the requirements of God's law. You know, whether if it might be the way in which we are selective about certain passages or certain teachings. We sort of edit the Bible as it were. Jesus says, no, no, even the least of these commands you are accountable for. You must conform your life to. Even the least of these commands. And if you understand what he's saying, he's saying, in fact, there is no least because you are actually to obey it all. So what's in your life, practically speaking, the least commandment, the smallest one, the one that you're sort of tucking away and saying, well, this one's important, but not that one over there. Where do you tend to kind of gloss over, especially uncomfortable truths that you would see and encounter in Scripture? Maybe you're someone that cares a lot about what the Bible says about caring for my family, but you ignore what it maybe says about caring for the poor. Or maybe you're someone that's really devoted to justice for the poor and marginalized, but you really don't care about what the Bible says about a critical tongue or a divisive spirit, or a hard and unrepentant heart. The different ways in which we can kind of start to live, and maybe you see this in yourself, I I, I like the acceptance of Jesus, but I don't like the demands of Jesus. And where I want to follow certain parts of Scripture, but not other parts of Scripture, where we relax the challenge of God's commands, where we make it more manageable, more attainable. When God says love, we start to immediately bargain and defend ourselves and find ways to make that more, well, to our advantage. I'm not perfect, we say, but I'm doing okay. I'm trying my best. I'm at my sincerest. Jesus points us to all the ways in which we try to slip out from under this call to obedience. And one of the best ways that we do this, one of the most effective and common ways, is by what he describes as a a, a form of externalizing the law, keeping it on the surface, the outside of our lives, just making sure that, okay, I'll, I'll do things for God on Sundays and I'll live according to Scripture when people are watching or maybe I'll do some religious or dutiful or moral things thus far, but just thus far. In Jesus' day, the Jewish religious leaders were the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He mentions them in verse 20. They were a group of people that identified 248 positive commands in the Torah, things that you had to do 
And they also identified 365 negative commands, things that you had to avoid doing for a grand total of 613 commands found in the Old Testament law. 613. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will have no entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And you might misunderstand that and say, gosh, Jesus is saying surpass. Does that mean that they followed 613 rules? You need to follow 614. Is that what he means? The answer is no. He's not saying surpass their righteousness in number. He's saying surpass it in depth. Deep into the soul, deep into the heart, you see, because they had listed out all these rules, but they managed to keep them on the outskirts of their life so that they could actually pull them off. Where they could legislate and manage the commands of God's in a way where they could say, well, technically I did it, didn't I? I mean, I love that neighbor, but he didn't really deserve it. And if he doesn't deserve it and I give grace and mercy to someone that doesn't really deserve it, doesn't that just encourage more immorality? And so I'm just going to be only nice so far when God's word says, love your neighbor as yourself. Indeed, love as Christ has loved you. As John Stott, the scholar writes about this passage, he says Christian righteousness, in fact, is greater than Pharisee righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. That is, that the Bible actually penetrates deep into even your motives, even your desires, not just what you do on the surface, but why you do it. Not just that you Give your body to the flames and sacrifice for other people, but are you doing it for yourself or not? And in fact, the whole of the Sermon on the Mount constantly raises this question again and again and again. So we're going to revisit it over the next several weeks. Where Jesus says, look, don't restrict your understanding of God's word and his commands just to murder and adultery, these narrow acts alone. Do you understand that it also includes the murder of the heart? Angry thoughts, insulting words, not just the adultery of the body, but the adultery of the heart. Lustful looks, possessing someone on the inside with your thoughts, with your desires, even in secrecy. Jesus says later on, look, people say, love your neighbor, okay. Well, don't you know, loving your neighbor, if they love you, it's pretty easy. How about your enemy? How are you doing with them? Giving to the needy. You can give and give and give. But are you truly giving out of love? Or are you really actually giving for yourself? Your reputation, your image, your sense of personal righteousness. When you pray, Jesus is going to say later on, Are you praying to God and for God, or are your prayers actually a way that you try to bribe God to do what you want him to do? What is going on in the heart? And that is where if we would take Jesus for his word, we start to really sense the impossibility of fulfilling this righteousness with my crusty cold Where because if you take on an honest look at the law of God and the commands of God throughout Scripture, 
all the specific ways in which he calls us to love God and neighbor fully, we'll start to see that we fall far short, especially when we start to see those laws penetrating our hearts. And even if you say, well, I'm not someone that even knows if I believe in the Bible, just take, for example, one law in your own life and see if you can actually even fulfill that one consistently and perfectly. Like I do my best every day to do my best every day. Do you? I don't. Not even that one. Be kind to my neighbor? Uh-uh. Right? Whatever law you have in your life, even those we cannot fulfill, and especially when we take an honest look at the perfect, unerasable law of God, Jesus intends for us to fall to our knees and to say, this is utterly impossible. That, to obey this, to fulfill this righteousness, to live like this, to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, not just in number but in depth of heart, that would take a miracle. And it's that point that Jesus says, you're on to something now. Because what we need, dear friends, is not just harder work, not just more obedience, not just more diligence. What we need is a new heart. Because this is a righteousness that penetrates to the deepest places of our motives and motivations and desires. And what we need, therefore, is a brand new heart that's been radically changed by the grace of God in Jesus. By people that are confronted with the reality that you can't change yourself. And maybe you're starting to realize that. Maybe that's what brought you here today. I've tried and tried and it hasn't worked. Someone from the outside of me has to change me. And I know someone like that in his name it's Jesus. He gives us passages throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, that foresee a day when a new heart righteousness would be given. In Jeremiah 31, when God says, I will put my law within them, I will write it upon their hearts, they will, those who have my spirit, will begin to obey deeply and joyfully. In Ezekiel 36, we hear from the prophet, I will give you this promise, a promise of a new heart. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep all my laws. Why is it that entering God's kingdom is impossible without the righteousness that surpasses in depth that of the Pharisees? It's because the righteousness that Jesus is talking about, the righteousness that the Bible requires of us, can only come from a new heart. It's evidence of an inner transformation, one that only Jesus can bring to you and to me. Have you received a new heart? Are you hungry for a new heart 
Are you needing your new heart to be renewed? There's an old song that I fell in love with in college said, Give me a new heart, God, this one is old. Tired, empty, and hard as stone. I need a new heart, humble and meek, thankful, trusting, not too proud to be weak. A heart that knows I am nothing on my own, that in my weakness your power may be shown. Give me a new heart, one just like yours. Oh, Lord, give me a new heart. What if you prayed that in a new way today? What if you prayed that for the first time today? Might God give you that spiritual heart transplant that you desperately need? Might he send you his spirit, pour his grace and favor out upon you? Might he renew you, dear Christian, in your desire to love God by obeying his commands, by refusing to neglect those parts of scripture that maybe you've been hiding from or running from, recommitting yourself to a deeper accountability, even the accountability of the heart. Jesus gives us an inerasable Bible that reveals to us an impossible righteousness. Thanks be to God, he gives us a nearly impossible grace through his son, Jesus, our righteousness, our savior. Will you take this week to consider how do you feel about the Bible? What could it look like for you to give your life to what's in those scriptures even today? Let's pray together. Jesus, we are looking to you and asking that you would come, that you would bless us as we now seek to bear fruit. Tell us what to do with this. Show us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together and let's sing.